right, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're coming here to the end of the letter that Paul here has written, this hard letter. And in this final uh, verses of this book, he turns up the heat. And he gave a very, very strong statement of his concern and warning the church. If the church remained on its present course, he could only conclude that many in the leadership and the membership had never experienced the grace of God. So he challenges them. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves there in the fifth verse of that 13th chapter. In reality, Paul is emphasizing to them, and this in verse number 9, we, uh, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. That's an interesting statement. Because the apostle is telling us here, it, it doesn't matter whether we are obedient or disobedient, whether we are uh, falling away from the truth or whether we're clinging to the truth, the fact of the matter is not, nobody can do anything against the truth. My disobedience does not hurt the truth. It doesn't advance the truth. The truth is the truth. It stands and I'm at the mercy of it. We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. So if I fall away, the truth tells me, you're, this is what you do. <laughs> you're, you're one who falls away. So he concludes by saying, your restoration is what we pray for. Wow. Wow. He said, you're not affecting me and you're not affecting the truth. Your opposition to me is not going to change anything. But my concern is your relationship to God and therefore I pray for your restoration back to the truth and back to a obedient walk with the Lord. And in hope of this, Outcome, he further says there in verses 9 and 10, For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. Whoa. Meditate on that a little bit. He's warning them. He's warning them. He is God's representative. He is Christ's apostle. He has the power of God in his life. And when he comes again, it will not be pleasant for the disobedient. The problem was not that Paul doubted the genuineness of all of the Corinthian believers, as we're going to note later here in the message. But he did understand that in this present age, 
we are in constant conflict due to the imperfection of our flesh. Romans 8 is very clear on this matter. They're beginning with verse 12 through 14. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. That was the issue at Corinth. The flesh was getting in the way. For if, Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here's the truth again, see? For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. There's the key. Are you led by the Spirit? Or are you led by yourself? Are you driven by your own desires? But if, you're, if you are one who is under the control of the Spirit of God and He is leading you into all truth and directing your lives into obedience then you are the sons of God. That's the conclusion. So now this spills over in, then also into the corporate level because due to the imperfect, imperfect condition of the members and the leadership in, the, in this unglorified church, they got problems. And boy, did <laughs> Corinth have the problems. And Why? Because Satan takes advantage of this weakness of the flesh because he's desperate to hinder the church and to prevent the work of the gospel growing the kingdom of God in the earth. Revelation 12 warns us, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows his time is short. Revelation 12, verse 12. There's the vision here of the uh, woman with, this, with the crown of stars who is ready to give birth to a man-child and then there is the, the, the uh, serpent that's ready to devour the man-child when it's born. But uh, when she gives birth, the man-child is caught up to heaven. So then the serpent goes after the woman. But God protects her in the wilderness. <laughs> so the question is, who is this woman? I believe without any doubt in my mind that the, that the woman is the new covenant bride of Jesus Christ, the church. And her son caught up to heaven is Jesus Christ himself. So then, since Satan can't defeat them, and Jesus made that clear, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Paul's not worried about the church in Corinth. But he is concerned about certain believers and leaders in the church. He's concerned for them. The woman is protected. The son is seated at the right hand of the majesty. So Satan then goes after the individual believers, her offspring. He makes war on the rest of her offspring, the sons of the living God, 
who they're described here as those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Verse number 17 there of Revelation 12. And the day is coming, and hopefully soon, when the man-child Jesus will return and cast the usurper into the lake of fire. So in Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them, that is the nations, with respect to the gospel, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Oh, that will be the day. So the church there at Corinth, in her still imperfect state, was a victim of Satan's deception. And Paul makes that clear, as we've noted also. And many in the church were willing to listen to Satan's apostles who sought to turn the church away from the truth. And to accomplish their aim, they had to convince the church that Paul was a false apostle. And of course, that's the main reason for the writing of 2 Corinthians was to defend his apostleship. Not that he's defending himself, he's not. But he is an apostle of Christ. And he is defending that. They didn't want the church to listen to Paul. And Paul was not about to let that happen. So Paul showed them that it was not he, but actually King Jesus who was in control and that Jesus, the truth, spoke the truth to them, but through his servant Paul. Loyalty to Paul here, however, is not the issue. Loyalty to the truth was. And if they failed to see this, then Paul could only conclude that they had never experienced the saving grace of God. That is a powerful truth. So let's, first of all, we need to have a little backstory here. Twice in the passage, he says, this is the third time. Now, there's significance to that, and we'll point that out there as we go. But uh, we need a little backstory behind this in order to understand this. The church at Corinth was, was not established by Paul. He was God's instrument in that, the establishment of it, but he's not the one who established it. It wasn't Paul going to Corinth and, and starting a church. It was Christ through the gospel that established the church using the Apostle Paul. Thus, Jesus cannot, and here's the point, he cannot fail in his purpose. I ask you to recall here Paul's arrival in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And as was his custom when he came to Corinth, and it talks about his first uh, finding Aquila and Priscilla and joining himself with them, and they, because they were both tent makers, they worked together on that on that matter. But but then it tells us that in the gospel work here, he was going to the synagogue every Sabbath, where he tried to reason with them. That is true Jews, and then it's as in Greeks or Hellenists, which I believe in this case were the Jews that were influenced by Greek or worldly culture. And what happened? It says, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. 
From now on, I go to the Gentiles. And which I think is, is an interesting statement with respect to the fact that, that I think when Paul began his ministry, he just, he was believing he was going to be, because he was a Pharisee, he was going to win all these Jews. And the Jews just rejected him over and over, like they rejected Jesus. So now he, he says, he finally wakes up. He's, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. See? So I'm going to turn now to the Gentiles. And in spite of the Jewish opposition, and it was strong, at the same time here, the Lord was saving people in Corinth who were hearing Paul and believing and being baptized. According to verse number 8. At the same time the Lord said to Paul. And this was in his the, the dream. Do not be afraid. But go on speaking. And do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. And why? I have many in this city. Who are my people. Wow. What an encouragement. Keep going. Keep going, Paul. Don't let them don't let the discouragement bother you. I have a I have many people in this city. And so with that, Paul continued then preaching the word, teaching the word to them for another year and six months, according to verse eleven. It, and then there's an interesting story here about how the Jews increased their external opposition, also bringing the apostle before Gallio. If we can't Get Paul persuaded to leave us alone and get out of town. We're going to get the government involved. <laughs> so they, they brought Paul before Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. And according to God's promise to Paul, he intervened. God intervened. And Gallio refused to, to prosecute the Apostle Paul. <laughs> he said, oh, you guys, you don't have a case here. Get out of my, get out of my sight. <laughs> and then, uh, I think it's, it's a curious thing. A result here is the angry Jews seized Sosthenes. They beat him right there in the uh, government building. And I think probably to get Gallio's attention. So that he'd do something. But the scripture says he paid no mind to them. Let them do their thing. So as a consequence of that we read. In verse number 18. Of Acts uh, 18. That Paul stayed many days longer. And then took leave of the brothers. To return to Antioch. The real danger that Paul and the church faced, however, was not attack from without. See, that's the point. It, it just seems like when the unbelieving world persecutes the church, it just makes the church stronger. Satan has figured it out. Attack the church, you're just going to make it stronger. So what do you do? You join the church. That's what happened in the Roman Empire as well. The Roman 
government said, we can't get rid of the church. We might as well make the church the official religion of the state. And that's when the church started going downhill. Yeah, it's the subtle in, insurrection of the church that Satan finds successful. And so he brings in his false apostles. Deceitful workmen, Paul called them, disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. They're in chapter 11, verses 14 and 15 of 2 Corinthians. And here was the real danger. Paul assured the church, then, if I come again, I will not spare them, the false apostles and their followers in the church. And then he said another interesting truth here, and this is chapter 13, verses 2 to 4. I will not spare them, Paul says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He, notice, he, not I, he, Jesus, is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness. You say, oh yeah, they thought they overcame him. They put him on a cross. He died. They were victorious until the third day on that Sunday morning the stone was rolled away and he wasn't there. <laughs> he was risen from the dead. He was crucified in weakness but lives resurrection power by the power of God. So then Paul says and we also are weak in him. Yeah, you look at us and say, yeah, there's nothing. Nothing the Apostle Paul. Yeah, but you don't see the truth. You don't see that in fact I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and I have the power of God upon me. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Get ready, folks. When I come on this third time, if you haven't got things straightened out, you're going to see the power of God in your midst. Whoa. So what is the principle here? Jesus revealed this to Peter there when he promised him, and not just Peter, I think all who, who are followers of Jesus Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is militant. It's militant through the gospel. The church has entered into a hostile, enemy-infested world. But the church is going to be victorious in its work. And it will grow and grow and grow until it fills the earth. And God will have gathered out of all nations, kindreds, and people a people for His name. And then He will come again. I will build my church and Satan can put up all the defenses he wants to do. They will not stop the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. On that occasion, and here's this is important to, to get this. On that occasion, at the foot of, of Mount Hermon, he 
revealed to Peter the means whereby the church would be successful in this gospel age. I will give you, not just Peter, as some suggest, but all the servants working to establish the church throughout this present era of gospel proclamation. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's authority. Think about that. Matthew 16, 19. Well, what are the keys of the kingdom? The keys of the kingdom is the authority which Christ gives to the church to pronounce judgment on believers in sin and with the promise of forgiveness when they repent. The authority to pass judgment on sinners. We are judging my sins. Yeah. <laughs> because I have divine authority to do so. Not me. The church. That's why they hate the church. That's why Satan hates the church. And the world hates the church. Because the church stands as the symbol of righteousness in an unrighteous age. They stand as the judgment upon that unrighteousness. But also with it is the promise of forgiveness that when they repent, they will be forgiven. And that's not on human authority, but on the basis of Christ's own words. So Paul, in his first epistle, urged the church to use this authority. In fact, this is what really the, the core issue is. There was a man in the church who had married his father's wife. Perhaps the father passed away and then he married this, this girl. She, maybe the father married this, an older man married a much younger girl and so now the son, that's not his mother, but probably a, another, a second wife, married her, which is a violation of the law, of, of the Mosaic law, let alone the standards of the community. Because Paul said of that, of that situation, that the, the heathen around us don't even think that's right. But they were tolerating it. Not only were they tolerating it, they were acting like, hey, our toleration of it makes us look very important. We, we, look how nice we are. Look how good we are because we're tolerating this. And Paul said, no, I've already judged it. And I'm not even there, but I've already judged it. What is that? I'm using the keys of the kingdom. I have a right to pass judgment. The church has a right to pass judgment on sin. You're not doing it. So then he said to them, and this is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 4, 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the... In, notice, when you are assembled. This is the church, not individuals. In the name of the Lord. That is, under His right and authority. 
by my spirit, and my spirit is present. As the apostle of Jesus Christ, I have some influence in this matter. With the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, just think about that. You are to deliver this man, this sinful, disobedient member, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's the day of the Lord? That's when Jesus comes back in great power and glory and judges the world. So the church's reluctance then to act on this matter was a real concern to Paul. Thus he wrote, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many who of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual immorality, the sensuality that they have practiced. 2 Corinthians 12.21 So the Lord will purify His church. He has promised to do that. And He purifies it through obedience to the truth so that at His coming a fully redeemed and restored bride will be ready for the kingdom which will then be perfect, physical, and visible. This kingdom will be established in in a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells, according to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. So this brings me to this. The Lord has already assured Paul that he had many of his own in the church. That's not the issue. Paul is not worried about the church but he is concerned about the purity of the church. And thus the present concern is to get this church restored. They stumbled, but they, but they needed to recognize their error and repent and become obedient again to the faith. And that was the goal. Your restoration is what we pray for. According to 13 verse 10. And this brings us to the bottom line, as it were. Examine yourselves. That is an imperative. It's a command to see whether you are in the faith. 13 verse 5. This command was preceded by the announcement that Paul's coming would be a third time. I told you I'd mention that. We see that in chapter 12, verse 14, and then we see it here again in chapter 13 and verse 1. Twice he says this. And then he followed this in 13, 1 by citing Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Everything must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the third time. This is the third witness. And I also think, by the way, Jesus himself cited that in his instruction on church discipline, which is found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 16. That at the mouth of two or three witnesses, Paul is no doubt referring to that as well. And so again, he warned them, I will not spare them, the disobedient. There in, in verse 2, in Titus, 
he wrote there in chapter 3 and verse 10 and, and verse 11, instructions to the church, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Three times. You warn him three times, he's done, and you're done with him. Wow. Have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Ah. And that brings us then to the final exam. In verses... Uh, in chapter five, or chapter thirteen, verses five to ten, examine yourselves. And again, this is a, a command. And here's the instructions for this test. I'm, I'm going to give you a test, a final exam. Reminds me of a, a seminary student who came to his the, to his his final theological exam in a particular class, and he was totally unprepared. So he wrote at the bottom of his of his exam, Dear Professor, while I was not prepared for this exam, I want you to know that I love Jesus with all my heart. And I also want you to know that your lectures have been a great blessing to me. So after the exam and grading of the exam, the professor returned his paper to him with this note. I am happy to know that you have committed your life to Jesus. I'm also delighted to know that my lectures have been such an inspiration to your life. Furthermore, I want you to know that in the kingdom of God, you will be judged on the basis of grace for which you get an A. However, in my class, you will be judged according to your works, and you get an F. <laughs> Are we ready for the exam? Paul gives them instructions here for making this exam, and then focus... The focus of the test is to determine whether one tested is a genuine believer. This is an important verse for all of us. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you have failed the test? Test yourselves. Test yourselves. Yourselves occurs three times in the passage. Three times. Here's a threefold witness. And this one verse, it's there clearly for emphasis. And the emphasis is, are you in the faith? Not your neighbor. You. Don't judge others. Examine yourself. And there, it's interesting, the Greek, three Greek terms here that Paul employs. The first is translated examine or test. Test yourselves. The idea here is a is taking a close and hard look at something. Examine it. Look carefully at it. And which also I think involves the fact that you better know something to, to look at. What are you looking for? Is Christ in you? You can't be saved if, the, if Christ is not in you. And in the new birth, Christ comes into every believer. 
it's interesting, we are in Christ, but it's also Christ in us. In Christ, which is, our, which is a positional truth, we are seated with Him in the heavenlies in Christ. But in, with Christ in us, and He's in us by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And every believer in Jesus Christ has the gift of the Holy Spirit residing in Him. That's Christ in you. So the question is, is Christ in you? To the Colossians, Paul wrote, to, the, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. My hope of glory, my hope of eternal life, my hope of of everlasting salvation is the fact that the Holy Spirit is in me. He has been given to me as a guarantee, as a down payment of the, of the redemption price. I still live in the flesh, but because in my spirit I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I have this confidence to live out every day, as hard as it may be, in this realization and hope that one day Jesus is going to come and get me and I'll be perfected and be like Him forever. Amen. So do you have his presence, his power, his purpose, and peace in your life? The second term is translated test. Test. Or to prove by showing evidence. It's a different word. Show by, uh, prove something by showing evidence. Okay, what, what's the evidence here? I'm looking for Christ in me. Now what's the evidence that Christ is in me? You see the difference? The first test, is Christ in you? The second is, what's the evidence? Is there evidence to support the profession? Has the indwelling presence of Christ by His Spirit changed my life? How different are your thoughts, habits, goals, relationships, feelings, and so forth? This is the same term that's used in Revelation chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and that by testing you may discern. It's used twice. By testing you may discern what, or prove, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's also used in Ephesians 8, uh, 5, 8 through 10. Walk as children of light, and try to discern, that's the word, what is pleasing to the Lord. Again, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 4. But let each one test or prove his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Examine yourself and test yourself. Then the third term is realize. After you've looked at it, am I, is Christ in me? Yes. What's the evidence? This and this and this. Then conclude something. Perceive. Recognize. Understand. I look at it. I discern it. I, I, I then uh, understand it. Jesus said, 
in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, you will know them or recognize them by their fruits. That's the word, recognize. You'll recognize them by their fruits. So what's the result? The result of the tests, there are four things that Paul gives to prove their genuineness. First, they would recognize Paul as genuine because the Spirit of God would affirm it to them. That's verse 6. Second, they would do the right thing as a consequence. That's verse 7. Third, they would understand the primacy of the truth in everything. That's verse number 8. And fourthly, they would understand Paul's purpose in building them up in the faith. Not He was not their enemy. That's verses 9 and 10. So what's the conclusion? Let me close by just emphasizing here that uh, in the, the very last verse, <laughs> in uh, verse number 11, finally, brothers, finally, brothers, and notice, he recognizes them as brothers, finally brothers. And then he gives six commands. So let me share very quickly what these six commands are. Rejoice. Why? We're to be always rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. Proverbs 17 verse 22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine. <laughs> rejoice. Rejoice. Always rejoice, even in the midst of your difficulties, your hardships, your sorrows, your, your disappointments. Rejoice in the Lord. That's the thing that we're always to do. And then secondly, aim for restoration. Or, this is, one, this is a hard one. I really think the idea here is to aim for restoration. He said, I'm praying for your restoration. Now you aim for it. Aim for it. Uh, it's also translated, be perfect. Be perfect. And be perfect means complete, not, not uh, as the only perfection that we're going to have is when Jesus Christ comes back again. But, but in this life, we are to, to be mature. We're to be complete. We're to be grown up. Grow up spiritually. Be men, spiritually. Aim for this restoration. And the term is used in, in the scriptures for mending nets and resetting broken bones, for fixing what is damaged or supplying something that's missing. The Revised Standard Version has it, mend your ways. I kind of like that. Mend your ways. In other words, having received instruction, strive to complete obedience and spiritual balance that your life may be useful to God. Then the third command is comfort one another. You get your own life squared away, then turn and look to the needs of those that are sitting around you. Encourage them. Cheer them. Console them. Don't be focused on yourself. In fact, I really believe that to love Jesus with all your heart means that you are looking to see what you can do in Christ's stead to 
be a blessing and an encouragement and a comfort to others around you. And the word comfort there is the word parakletos. It's used of the Holy Spirit who comes alongside to give, to render help and comfort. Then number four, agree with one another. And I, I believe that is talk things out. Think, and then think the same things. Be united in your spirit. That was the problem of the church. It was divided. I'm a Paul. I'm a Peter. I'm a Apollos. I'm a Christ. Is Christ divided? Be of the same spirit. Be united in the spirit. And then number five, live in peace. And that's the consequence. And so there's a progression of things here. See? Now live in peace. In other words, share the life of God in you peaceably with each other. And that doesn't mean compromise either. When something's wrong, it's wrong and it needs to be dealt with. Then the last one, greet one another with a holy kiss. Pucker up. (laughs) Greet one another with a holy kiss. In other words, show brotherly affection. Father, thanks for this book. It's been a great inspiration to me and a great encouragement and help Lord as you have walked us through this book and I pray we would learn these lessons that we would strive to be full adults in our spiritual walk that we would be a a great comfort and help to one another that we be united in our minds and hearts into the will of God and the things of God, and that we would love one another with a pure heart fervently. And we praise you and thank you for what you're going to do in our midst. And thank you for this, for the sake of our Savior, and in his power and authority. Because you've given us the truth, and you have given us the paraclete, the comforter who lives in our hearts. And we praise you for that. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.